those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic consulting marketing firm for addiction treatment behavioral health providers. Today we are speaking with Carrie Wilkins, and I am super excited to have her on. I have been a big fan of her work for a long time. Um, we had the opportunity to meet uh, up in New York. God, was that? Earlier in the spring, I think there was a conference there. She owns a addiction treatment program and an outpatient center. And she also wrote the book Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. It is an amazing resource and is the number one thing that I recommend to any family that reaches out to me looking for support with a loved one struggling with addiction. So before we uh, kind of give you a little bit more background on her conversation, let's hear from our wonderful sponsors. Professionals, like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast, know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com slash free. Fantastic. So Carrie is going to talk about uh, an approach to family involvement in the treatment and the healing process called CRAFT. And it's not very well known, surprisingly. So I was very happy to actually stumble upon CRAFT when I was researching different ways for family to be involved but it's in a very effective um, science-driven approach to family involvement that's quite different from the models that you're gonna hear in uh, programs like Al-Anon and PAL. It's a more involved approach, and Carrie's gonna go into why it's different and why it's effective, and then she'll walk through some examples of what the tools are that families are given so they can effectively help people. Because one of the issues, as we all know, within uh, addiction treatment in success and outcomes is going back to the same environment that you came from. And there is often this mistaken assumption that someone coming out of addiction treatment is fixed, right? That's kind of just an assumption families have for a variety of reasons. And we want to help change that perspective and say, okay, there's actually a lot of work that still needs to be done, right? Change is difficult, change is hard. Uh, It's not going to happen overnight. And not only is that difficult, but it's really, really difficult if you're trying to do it by yourself, or if you're coming back into a negative environment, right? So if we can provide families with uh, evidence-based tools to support loved ones, it is only going to improve outcomes for the clients and patients coming out of our centers. So that's really exciting. And then because she's the owner of a couple facilities herself, she can walk us through the logistics of how that's implemented. So how do you get reimbursed for it? How do you make sure that you're able to provide that additional support to the family when you're already providing so much support to um, the patient themselves that's coming in? So really excited to just have her walk you through those different aspects of craft and invitation to change is one of their newer initiatives that has kind of updated the craft model and made it even more effective. So with that, let's get into the interview. Hey, Gary, appreciate you coming on the show today. Can you just take a moment and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what the Center for Motivation and Change does? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, my, I am the clinical director and co-founder of a couple of different programs at this point. Um, my partner and I, Dr. Jeff Foote, started the outpatient program, the Center for Motivation and Change in New York City. We started that about 17 years ago. And uh, so that's outpatient We've got about 30 psychologists at this point using a variety of different evidence-based treatments to help people with substance use problems, both with the substance use problem and then all of the co-occurring things that come along with that. And then in 2014, we opened CMC Berkshires, which is a 13-bed residential treatment program in uh, 
Western Massachusetts, um, same evidence-based treatment model with um, just the ability to treat uh, trauma and OCD and anxiety disorders a little bit more deeply than you might be able to do as an outpatient. And then just two years ago, we started the Center for Motivation and Change um, Foundation for Change, which is our nonprofit where the mission is really to get evidence-based treatment ideas into the hands of family members because they really are being massively underserved at this point. So that's our kind of last and final frontier. Great. And that's really why I wanted to have you on today. Um, you've done a lot of amazing work around families, uh, obviously with Kraft in particular. And we've even had families here on the podcast. And one of the most common concerns that we'll hear, whether it's from guests we've had or just in the own research um, our company does, is that they families feel very left out of the treatment process. So can you just tell us a little bit about your philosophy and how you see families being involved in the treatment process for their loved ones? Yeah, I think it's one of the most uh, important things you can possibly do when you're trying to help someone with a substance use problem. And, you know, I'm first to acknowledge I was really, when we started CMC, you know, again, 17 years ago, uh, and my partner said, we should get trained in craft, which is community reinforcement and family training, because uh, nobody was doing craft back then. And, um, you know, he's <laughs> he's constantly reading journals, and he was like, this sounds like a really great you know, really research-proven effective strategy, and nobody's doing it. We should figure it out. So we got trained in it, and I was like, I don't want to deal with family members. I'm, <laughs> I can't deal with it. And um, you know, got trained in it and started doing it, and um, now love it. And you know, just I think it's again one of the most important things you can do because to help the person with the substance use problem, you have to help them change the environment that they're going back to, and family members have historically not been involved or they've been told they've got their own disease of codependence, um, which causes a lot of them to run helter-skelter the other direction um, or feel really bad about themselves. Um, they're blamed for the problem. They, you know, they're, So they're not included in constructive ways. And I frankly have never met a family member who doesn't want to be helpful. Like They want to help. Um, in fact, they're desperate to help. And by the time their loved one is seeking treatment, they're often incredibly burned out and quite beaten up by the process. Um, you know, And the problem is they just don't have the skills um, to deal with the problem that's in their household. Um, we say to our parents all the time and our family members, like, you didn't go to school for this. Like, I went to school for this. I've got training. I've got skills. I've got ways to think about this. There's no reason you should know how to help your loved one um, when it comes to a substance problem, but you can learn. And there's a lot of things you can learn to take better care of yourself and be really helpful to your loved one. So I think it's empowering. I think it's, you know, it really, it really changes things in a positive way. So I want to explore that a little bit. Uh, you wrote a book with Jeffrey Foote called Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. And the philosophy is primary craft in there. And it outlines something that I think um, people are probably not as familiar with. You know, if they've been through Alan or PAL, if people are familiar with parents of addicted loved ones, uh, this presents things in a different light um, in, in a number of respects. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and tell us uh, um, a little bit more about how you and Jeffrey um, look at that a bit differently than maybe what people have been used to from different support groups. Yeah, sure. So you got to, um, thanks for the plug for the book and I'm glad you like it. Um, but you got to give the second half of it, which is beyond addiction, how science and kindness help people change. So, um, because I, I think those two components are really important. Um, the science part being the craft part because uh, craft has been, uh, it, it really is, it's quite astounding that it's only been in probably in the last two or three years um, where we can go give trainings. And one of the first questions I ask is, hey, does anybody, has anybody heard of craft? <laughs> and it's only been in the last like two or three years where you get people raising their hands. Um, you know, for the last 20 years, it's like crickets. Um, you know, treatment providers just do not know about it. Um you know, there's mountains of evidence, um, you know, in terms of research studies looking at craft, and the original studies were all comparing craft to the uh, Johnson intervention model to Al-Anon, and craft wins hands down again and again and again. Um, you know, so what it does is it takes the concerned 
uh, significant other of somebody who doesn't want to seek treatment. You know, so it was really designed for people who had a loved one who was like, I don't have a problem. I don't want to go to treatment. I'm not having it. They bring the family member, and unfortunately, it's typically um, a wife or mom. Um, most of the studies really show that women are the ones that seek <laughs> seek treatment um, or seek help um, in trying to get their loved one into treatment. Um, and you bring that person in, and you teach that person a variety of skills to understand the problems that they're facing in a different way. It really teaches them to understand reinforcement um, and reinforcement strategies. It teaches them how to use naturally occurring consequences um, as a way to uh, motivate their loved one. Uh, it teaches them positive communication strategies, and it teaches them a variety of self-care skills. And when they kind of put those three things in a horse race, craft, interventions, and Al-Anon, craft gets about 70% of the the person with the problem into treatment um, compared to interventions, which is about 30%, and compared to Al-Anon, which is under 10%. Um, you know, and you, the problem is Al-Anon wasn't designed to get people into treatment. Al-Anon was designed to be a support for the family member, right? Um, uh, which is a really important thing and a really amazing thing. Um, we're very supportive of people going to Al-Anon, and a lot of our clients go to Al-Anon, and they learn craft because they also really want their loved one into treatment, and they want their loved one to do better. So, you know, Al-Anon, unfortunately, kind of people often, whether it means to or not, a lot of people walk out of those feeling like I've got to distance myself from my loved one. I've got to disengage somehow and take care of myself and let my loved one figure it out on their own. Craft is like, you know what? There's a lot of things you can do. And one of the most important things you can do is stay connected in a, an effective strategic way um, and really learn skills to have a positive impact um, and quite and a motivational impact on your loved one. So that's the big difference. Perfect. And that's what I think I love so much about, you know, the book and the work you guys do and craft as a model in general. You know, I mean, a lot of families when they're going into um, different support groups, whether it's CODA or Al-Anon or PAL, you know, sometimes they get this message that they shouldn't be involved with their loved one at all, that not only should they not be involved, but they're actually um, negatively impacting their loved one in a variety of ways. And I think there's a good message in there, too, that they have to focus on themselves first. If they can't care for themselves, then how can they care for someone else? And the establishment of healthy boundaries is really, really important. But, you know, we like I mentioned, we've had guests on the show that talked about how they wanted to be connected to their loved one. And, you know, they didn't really understand how the whole process worked. They would ask, well, you know, now that my son or daughter or husband or wife is done with treatment, are they fixed? And then when they would try to be involved in treatment, you know, if they called the facility where their loved one was at, they'd often get the impression that they were being intrusive or that they were enabling or that they were, you know, exhibiting codependency in a negative fashion. And this is, you know, something that's difficult because families do want to help. So, you know, I think if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you have seen that's potentially a little bit different from that perspective or just some concrete strategies um, that you have seen as effective. So obviously there are valuable messages around things like healthy boundaries. You mentioned reinforcement. What are some other examples you have from your experience in ways that families can positively engage with their loved one who's struggling with addiction? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, and it's all well-intentioned and it's not, it's not coming from any bad place. It's just the, it's just the fallout of, um, I think it's just the fallout of way humans talk to each other in some ways, you know, because you may walk into an Al-Anon meeting where you get great advice um, and, and it really helps you change things and engage with your loved one in a completely different way and take care of yourself. Right. It really just depends on who you're, who you're working with um, and who's in, who happens to be in that group, which is the same for like any, any 12 step self-help meeting. Sometimes you walk into an AA meeting, it's awesome. And you feel like got the best advice ever. You know, you go into the next meeting and you might meet somebody who in a very opinionated way tells you to get off all your medication because that means you're not sober. You know I mean? You just, you just don't know who you're dealing with. I mean, that's just, that's just the nature of <laughs> nature of that. But when, you know, you've got a desperate family member walking in and they happen to cross paths with somebody who gives them a certain type of advice that may or may not be reflective of what their family needs. And because they're desperate, they take that advice full on. 
um, you could be really setting them back. Um, so one of the things that we've also done to craft is um, we've actually, so we've been training family members in craft for 15 years. And about five years ago, we started working with a partnership for drug-free kids to develop um, a way to train parents to help other parents, you know, because one of the most powerful things about the 12-step community and Al-Anon is it's free, right? It's incredibly important. People do not have enough financial resources. This is a long-term problem for most people. You know, they've got to be like having a free support that you can come back to and it's part of your community just to break the shame and the stigma. That's like incredibly powerful. But again, sometimes the messaging is off. So what we've been trying to do is develop a model that we can help lay people, so parent to parent, spouse to spouse, um, be able to be helpful um, in the same way you might be at Al-Anon, but you're just doing, you're using different content and you've got different access to different information. And so we've developed something that, that we're calling the invitation to change approach, which is craft. I like to call it essentially craft on steroids <laughs> because it's craft with um, a lot of understanding put into it because, you know, what we realized in trying to teach family members craft is if they're looking at addiction through a particular lens um, that it, it's very hard for them to pick up the skills because it literally kind of goes against what they've absorbed by the culture. You know, so if they've absorbed what the culture spits out, which is, you know, your loved one has a disease, they've got to hit rock bottom, you've got to use tough love, you're an enabler. You know, those words are very sticky. If you line up 10 people and say, what are, what's, an, what's enabling? Or, you know, what does tough love mean? And I'm, in, I'm including 10 lay people and 10 professionals. You're going to get 10 different responses. <laughs> like, those words are powerful, but they mean different things to different people. Um, and they're very messy, um, you know, and, you know, so family members get told you're an enabler. So they have the impulse to then back up and feel like everything I'm doing is bad in some way, instead of really being able to slow down and being like, okay, how am I engaging in my loved one? You know, that's constructive. You know, how can I, how can I be connected to them, support healthy behaviors in them, hope, you know, support sober behaviors in them, you know, how do I distance myself or ignore negative behaviors so that I'm not supporting them in any way? You know, how can I separate myself from those behaviors? How do I communicate about this problem so my loved one keeps talking to me instead of our family breaking down in conflict? Because that happens all the time. You know, it's just like people are just so riddled with content conflict by the time they're, you know, trying to get help. Um, and there's real, there's real ways to talk to your loved one where they're not going to get defensive. Um, which for a parent to be able to talk to their teenager and not make them defensive, that's incredible. Um, <laughs> it can really like change the course of your kid's life. Um, so the invitation to change, and I think some of these strategies, um, again, they're, they're keeping families, they have the potential to keep families connected and together through the change process. And it all, they also, in the invitation to change, what we really have built in is really trying to help family members see it as um, their loved one has to learn how to, like, if the goal is sobriety, right? Their loved one has to learn to be sober. There, there is a learning process. They're not going to leave rehab fixed. They're going to leave rehab hopefully with a set of skills that they're going to then try to apply as they go out into the world, and they are absolutely going to make mistakes. They're not going to know what they're doing. And so if you react to, to their first slip or to any setback they have with a complete freak out, you see, you weren't serious, you see, you didn't really want to be sober, all that kind of language, your loved one's going to be like, oh, why do I even want to try this? If you react to that slip in a very constructive way where you work to understand it, you work to understand what they didn't, you know, didn't understand, what they didn't anticipate, like how can you be helpful, you know, so you're really helping family members see the problem is like this is going to be going on for a while. Your loved one has to learn how to be sober. They have to learn how to change their relationships. They have to learn how to take care of their bodies in a different way. And learning takes a lot of time and practice and trial and error. And you got to be up for that ride with your loved one or your whole family is going to get demoralized and, and quite beat up by the process. And then we also try to help them realize they're in a learning process as well, you know, how they've engaged, how they manage their own emotions, all of that, um, really trying to help them realize that 
the whole family likely needs to experience changes. Um, and that can be a really amazing process if you engage them in a way that um, makes them feel really hopeful, which I think craft has the power to do. It's a very hopeful message, which um, is quite the opposite of what families often walk away with. Yeah, I agree. You know, something I want to hone in on here is that toolkit component, because I think it's not really treatment centers per se, right? It's the broader culture has this um, assumption and treatment centers have maybe done a poor job of communicating that when they come into treatment and then they finish that it's not done. Like you mentioned, it's a process. And so part of our job and part of what craft does well is provide not just the individual with the toolkit post-treatment, but the family is a toolkit about how to engage with their loved one appropriately, supportively in a way that's going to aid their recovery, right? Because I think as we both know, you know, families can obviously contribute um, through negative behavior patterns or, or relational dynamics. And so it's important to give them the tools that they need, just as it's important to give the individual the tools that they need. So I'm kind of curious about um, what you've seen in terms of how families respond to this toolkit, because they have gone through probably a lot of other, um, or they've heard a lot of other information that's telling them maybe the opposite, right? They're saying, don't be involved. You know, you're actually contributing to the situation. Maybe you're a problem is the messages that is being received or, or that's being implied, right? So when you give families this idea of, hey, you can help and here's how, how do they respond to that? Yeah, I think most families are quite relieved, actually. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it can be a jar. <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I'm pretty straightforward with parents in particular. You know, I will say, especially like if they're leaving our, our rehab, you know, if I'm, if I've just done an eval, you know, with somebody in our outpatient, um, you know, they'll, they'll be asking all sorts of questions. And I'm like, your child will probably relapse or have a setback in some way because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> like we're going to be giving them the skills they need. We're going to help them try to understand like what they missed, you know, what they didn't anticipate. Well, we're going to be working on all of that, but I really want you to be prepared for the learning process. Um, and one of the analogies that I use um, with people all the time, and, and you can just see them soften and be like, Oh, that makes total sense. You know, I'll say like, you know, if you wanted your child to learn how to play a Chopin etude and they'd never played the piano before, you wouldn't sit them down with a Chopin etude and say, play it, right? You would get them a piano teacher and teach them like little little fun ditties on the piano. They'd learn scales, like get their fingers stronger. They'd work on theory, right? They might have to work with that piano teacher for three or four years and really get up to like the next level of performance, you know, they're going to learn some of those piano pieces wrong. They're going to have to go back to the teacher and the teacher's going to be like, yeah, your fingering was a little off. Do it this way and practice it this way. You know, and over several years, they might get to point the point where they can play a Chopin etude. That's essentially like what it takes to learn how to be sober. And if you kind of break it down into some other learning process that they can actually relate to, you know, you can relate it to supports, you can relate it to anything that involves learning, you know, a skill over time. And when you kind of frame it to them that way, they can really, they can really see it. Um, another analogy I use a lot is, um, especially coming out of rehab, um, with parents who have kind of a hard time having some compassion for where their kid might be. I'll say, look, um, you know, what has happened to your child's brain? Um, you can't see, right? So if you're child had just been in a horrible car accident and had been thrown out of the car and broken both of their legs and crushed a couple of their ribs. They'd be rolling out of our rehab in a wheelchair with their legs <laughs> propped up, right? You would be managing your expectations for them in a different way because you could see their injuries. Um, you could see their wounds. That's what's happening for your child. So, you know, like that's what you kind of need to expect. That's the level of support they're going to need when they leave rehab. Maybe in like two, three months, um, they're going to be walking on a walker, or maybe walking with crutches, and you know they're still going to be a little wobbly and prone for their crutches getting kicked out from underneath them, right? So you got to like really kind of visualize the learning process of sobriety and and how to reinforce and support the changes that you're hoping to see, um, and then really like not support the things that you don't. I mean, we we have to work with parents all the time, you know, who are giving their kids, you know, money they 
shouldn't be giving or a spouse who's kind of cleaning up a mess um, for their partner that they shouldn't be cleaning up. Um, you know, the partner needs to see the mess that they just made, um, you know, or fielding concerned calls from people who saw them intoxicated. Well, don't tell your loved one that his friend Joe called worried about him. Tell Joe to talk to your husband, you know, like try to have the negative, the naturally occurring negative consequence play the role instead of you being the bearer of all the bad news. Um, you know, so those are the very kind of concrete skills that you're teaching, teaching people. That's great. And I really just kind of want to highlight that, that, you know, this is something that adds on um, and is another piece of the toolkit that we're talking about here. You know, if, if you've gone through Al-Anon, if you've gone through PAL, it's not like um, these are negative in any way, right? There's not necessarily problems here. They're, they're teaching healthy boundaries and they're teaching self-care. And sometimes people do need to take a step back. Um, where craft comes in, comes in and adds value, uh, in my opinion, and I think you'd agree here, is that it's providing them the tools to re-engage in a safe and healthy way that's supportive to their loved one. And so I just wanted to kind of get your sense of that. You know, w- would you say that's a, a correct assessment? Yeah, um, it's it's funny. I think I think the word enabling. Again, it's just the it's just the way it's been used in the culture, and it may not be all the way that different treatment providers use it or the way they intend it. But I think what at least the family members I've seen, and I've seen hundreds of them, they hear it as I'm doing something bad and I need to stop doing it, right? <laughs> Which is fine <laughs> on some level, but what they're not grasping is the idea of reinforcement. So substances are incredibly reinforcing, right? They have an impact on the brain. We like them. They feel good. They work for us in some way. Um, You know, one of the things that we've put in the invitation to change approach is a whole section on behaviors make sense. Your loved one's not using drugs because they're crazy or because they're a bad person necessarily. They are using drugs because they work for them in some way. So if you can slow down and try to understand what that is, that's the reinforcer. So my husband comes home immediately grabs a scotch, and by the time we're sitting down having dinner, he's three scotches in. Okay, well, what is that scotch doing for him? It's reducing stress. Is it helping him make the transition from work to home, you know, when the kids are screaming in the living room? Like, what is that drink doing? Because then you can step back and be like, okay, so if it's a stress management thing, what can I do in my environment that might compete with the alcohol? Um, you know, can I do, can I as a spouse change something so that the alcohol does not have as much of a pull? Um, you know, so you're kind of helping them think about the environment. You're helping them think about their communication strategies. Um, you know, you want to reward your loved one and reward doesn't mean cash. Um, (laughs) reward can just mean your attention, um, your love, your affection, just noticing, you know, so you want to reward any positive behavior that they do um, and then ignore or withdraw the rewards from any negative behavior. One of the things we talk about a lot is, um, you know, if your loved one comes home sober, which is something you want, if you're, if you greet them at the door, pissed off about them from something that happened four days ago, that isn't reinforcing, right? So they came home, came, came home sober for something you which is something you really, really want, really reinforce that. Be like, I'm so glad you're home. Um, let's sit down and have dinner. It's nice to have your company, right? Like, and find a way to take care of that anger in another way. <laughs> um, and that's where the support comes in, and that's where taking care of yourself comes in, because right in that moment you're reinforcing, it's awesome you came home sober. Do that again, you know? <laughs> um, you know and that's that's – it's it's hard work, but it's incredibly effective. Um, and I think that's what starts to happen when people really learn these skills. There is a little bit of a, ah, why do I have to be the one to make changes? You know, but if you can kind of help them realize, like, making these changes can really change the dynamic in your home and really give your loved one a reason to be sober, which is the thing you want to. They'll they'll buy in, and then it starts to work. Um, and then they're like, wow, I, I, you know, he came home sober four times last week you know that was great he screwed up three times so we got to still tackle that but four times sober is better than no time sober um you know so another thing that craft talks about is success by approximation where you're really helping them see like you got to build success over time um and there may be a bunch of stuff 
negative that you have to tolerate here and there. Um, you know, and again, that's where the self-care and getting support really comes into play so that you can just ride out those moments. Yeah, I really agree with that positivity component. I think that's so important. You know, we know for a fact, just through the research, that focusing on the negative and avoidance is not a very sustainable strategy, right? Telling yourself, don't pick up that donut, don't take that drink on the cigarette, don't take that next drink. You know, these things tend to wear down our willpower, constantly telling yourself no. Whereas if we're focused on something positive, we have a goal to work towards and it's just much, much easier, right? Um, I, I think, you know, as most listeners know, I'm on the board for Above and Beyond Recovery in Chicago, and we help the homeless and disadvantaged population on Chicago's west side. And the focus we have in our programming is meaning, purpose, hope, and community. You know, and people are coming in from really hard lives, right? They've lived on the street their entire lives, generations of poverty, um, decades in jail, decades of crack, you know, habits, decades of drinking and drugging and everything else. And so when they come in and they're told, hey, you know, you have value, you're worth something, and here's your purpose, here's hope, right? Here's a, a group of people that will support you. That positivity is so powerful, and I've seen it, obviously I've seen it above and beyond constantly, but I also see it at all the facilities we go into across the country. When people are focused on moving forward and improving their lives, that's when you really see true success with patients and clients. And so I think that's something that craft brings to the table is they bring that ability for, for parents, for loved ones, you know, for the families to say, hey, here is something to work towards and here's how we can help you work towards these positive goals rather than, you know, the negative reinforcement that you see with the constant nagging or the blaming or the shame and the guilt, which tends not to be super effective. You know, at least that, that's my impression of where I see the value being added here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, again, just going back to the reinforcing aspects of drugs, drugs feel good. They do. Um, but they might not feel good towards the end, you know, when you're kind of in, deep in the despair of it. But um, initially, that's why people go into it, because they feel good in some way. So you've really got to, like, keep that in mind. Um, you know, and like Bill Miller wrote an awesome article uh, about the history of confrontation um, uh, just in the treatment industry over the decades, uh, and how there's literally not a single study that says that confrontation is an effective treatment stat strategy. In fact, it predicts relapse. Um, you, you know, so you got to wonder how did it get so baked into baked into treatment and baked into how our culture thinks we should be treating people with substance use problems. Um, it's really just shocking. Um, so. Yeah, it's odd. You know, this is obviously my commentary on it. But in the U.S., we tend to be very punitive. We're very punishment oriented in terms of how we think we're going to solve problems. And, you know, I, I think of a couple stories, right? Uh, one, I used to be in education for quite a while. And there's a, a fabulous researcher called Elfie Cohn. And, you know, he would always give this example of, like, I want you to imagine when you were little, right, and you did something wrong and your parents sent you up to your room to think about what you did. And just ask yourself, how many of you went up there and sat in your room and said, oh, you know what? My mother's right. I, that was just bad behavior. And I, I will never do that again. I mean, no, that, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, what you do is you think, man, I'm going to get her when I get out. Or, you know, I'm going to have to figure out a better way not to get caught with this. You know, I'm so angry, right? This negative model doesn't tend to change behavior, um, at least in a positive way, right? It, it does, it might change the behavior so that it's less easy to catch it. And we see that all the time in addiction, you know, not um, unsurprisingly. Before I was in education, I did domestic violence and it's very, very similar there, right? Uh, early on in domestic violence treatment for the abusers, they would basically just put them in a room and yell at them and tell them what bad people they were, right? And then they started doing some research on this and, and lo and behold, that was not effective. Um, the same resentment that the children had going to the room, you saw with um, people being told that they were bad people as abusers. So if you want effective behavioral change, you have to find out what their internal motivations are and then provide positive reasons um, to get what they want in a different direction. You know, these negative reinforcement models are not very effective, um, but they, they have been a traditional part of addiction treatment, right? Especially in some stronger 12-step uh, models. You know, if you look at really old school models, it wasn't uncommon. We had a guest on this show that mentioned that uh, her son had had his head 
shaved, you know, because he was too proud and pride was this problem, you know, within the group setting. And so it was punitive, um, but it's just not super effective. Positive reinforcement tends to be much more effective in changing behavior, especially if, if it's collaborative with the people that are looking for the behavioral change and especially if there's a relationship there. So something that you've said a couple times and that I really want to comment on is just the importance of getting to know why someone is using. And I, I think this is especially important with teens. It's important with everyone, but teens for sure. You know, if you come in and that teen comes home and, and you go into your mode of, of nagging or blaming or shaming um, and these guilt trips, you create distance and that teen is not going to want to talk to you or that loved one's not going to talk to you. And I can even speak from personal experience here, right? When I was a teen and when I was drinking too much, I would come home and that was the situation, right? It was a lot of yelling or just negative conversations. And then you juxtapose that with the experience you just had with your friends, which was hilarious and, and fun and everyone has, was having a good time. You know, so you, you look at these two worlds and suddenly the home world starts to become negative, right? And you're getting all this uh, negative reinforcement for your actions, whereas your friend groups are supporting it and, you know, approving of the behavior. And you think, okay, I came home, I got yelled at, I call my friend, we talk about the same exact thing that we did and we laugh and we have a good time. That's a problem in the relationship and in the communication structure because a teen is going to shut down, right? A teen is going to distance themselves from that home life, just as most people are going to distance themselves and start to no longer listen to that person, not value that person's opinion because it's not matching up with their reality and the reality of their peer groups, right? And so for teens, you have to sit down and say, okay, well, why are you um, drinking or using drugs? And what, what's the motivation here? And if you don't open that door, then you're never going to know what's going on. And that's really critical because if a teen is not willing to talk to you or a loved one is not willing to talk to you, then there's no communication there to facilitate change. And so maybe it is in uh, your loved one's best interest to get them to change their behaviors, but you're not going to get that through negative reinforcement. You have to build that relationship. You have to open that door. And this is one of the reasons why I recommend Beyond Addiction to families that call me all the time is because it really pushes that um, that point home. You know, it's something that families haven't thought about before. They're always having these kind of negative interactions and they've never sat down and said, well, why? Why are they doing this? Why, why is this behavior here? And if I can figure out why, then I can probably figure out ways to help them get what they want in, in healthier ways, right? That's more beneficial, especially with teens. So I'm glad that you were able to really bring that together in the book, and I'm just so thankful for it. Yeah, that's um, one of the things. Thank you for bringing that up, because that's one of the biggest things that we added uh, to craft in the invitation to change approach. So craft has a whole section on positive communication, right, where um, it talks about listening. It talks about um, how to frame questions. Uh, it talks about, you know, how to lower people's defensiveness through uh, how you communicate. So that's a big part of it. Um, that is actually really hard to do <laughs> when you're upset, when you're upset, when you're mad, when you're overwhelmed, when you're frightened. I mean, you know, family members get really frightened and especially with the opioid problem out there. I mean, if your loved one's overdosed or people are at risk for over, you know, dosing, their family members are terrified. Um, so one of the things that we put in the invitation to change approach is a whole section on what we're calling willingness um, and just emotional awareness where you're really like trying to slow yourself down and realize like, okay, my overarching, like the thing I value most is my connection to my family member and my family's well-being, right? So... <laughs> If I want to help my loved one and I want to stay connected to my loved one because I want to be a good spouse or I want to be a good partner or I want to be a good parent, yelling at them in the moment probably doesn't match that, right? doesn't match that goal, <laughs> raging at them or yelling at the moment or, you know, pushing them away. It feels good in the short term um, because you're desperate and you're freaked out and you're frightened. Um, so you've got to help people navigate that. Like, how can I stay attached to my overarching goal in these short-term 
moment-to-moment interactions where you're actually completely maxed out emotionally. Um, so that's, that, there's so much in there <laughs> in terms of, you know, being able to do that effectively. Again, when people start to do it, it really works. Um, and so it's very quickly reinforcing. Um, it's funny, I, I say all the time, like, we will have um, young adults in our intensive day program and, you know, a, a new kid will start or something and you know they'll be like yeah my therapist really wants me to involve my parents and I, I don't want my parents involved and other kids in the group will say oh no 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 no, do it it gets so much better like I'm talking to my mom now like things are so much better you know so they will really act as salespeople, you know for including the family um because they're reaping the benefits of it um you know they're like we're not fighting so much anymore we might have for sure we have our moments but it's not like it used to and, you know, people really want to be connected to their family. That's a good point. I mean, most people want a relationship with their families, right? And they're looking for that bonding and that connection. And you see so much pain, you know, in treatment centers and groups and family days when, when they don't have that connection or when they start to share and realize how much pain has really been built up between um, individuals in those relationships. So getting them to connect and just being able to help them see the value of using these tools to rebuild relationships that they probably want is is something that brings a lot of value to the table. Yeah, and I think that's part of the, again, the language problem. I mean, I hope that through your show and through everything else that we're doing, if we can completely eradicate the phrase, your loved one needs to bottom out, that would be like such a powerful outcome because nothing good comes from that statement. Um, and if you say to a parent, sorry, your kid needs to bottom out, um, especially with the opioid crisis, like, okay, so you're telling them, yeah, your kid might have to die. What parent can hear that? Um, like, and really take it on. I mean, you can hammer it into them over a period of time, I suppose, where they're eventually beaten down enough that they take that as a message. But that's like, soul sucking such a horrible message um you know versus saying hey there's some ways you can engage in a way more strategic effective way there's some stuff that you're doing that's probably supporting your loved one's use inadvertently you don't mean to do it you're not doing it on purpose but that's probably what's happening so we need to help you stop doing those things and then we need to help you figure out like what can you reinforce and then we got to help you figure out like how can you talk to your loved one so that they will engage with you because how are you going to talk your loved one into treatment if they're not talking to you right so how are you going to present them from options if you guys are yelling at each other all the time so to really help them see like these strategies are going to is what's going to lead you and your loved one into a better place family members are relieved um they they really are um i mean you have to you have to work at it and you're giving them the rationale often again and again and again but the ones who sign on for it are psyched um and are like yeah yeah, and, and there's value there, right? I mean, we've all heard the stories. I'm sure you've heard them too of the family that was given that advice of, of giving ultimatums or tough love and, and you're not helping them in any way, shape, or form. And then unfortunately, that loved one ends up dying and overdosing, right? And so that can't be the sole answer because we we can't allow people to be dying on the street, right? We, we can't, if they're disconnected, if they don't have the support, that can really lead to negative outcomes. So I think it's important to make sure that we help families know that there is uh, potential to establish communications and support them in in positive ways. Yeah, well, so the foundation, um, you know, again, where we were developing the invitation to change approach over the last, like, five years, um, where we were training parents to coach other parents on a 1-800 hotline. So the parent volunteers who would come to these trainings, um, I think it was about 15% of them had actually had a child die, um, you know, and, and these are parents who just want to volunteer and give back to other parents who are just in the deep end of the pool trying to help their kids. Um, and, you know, doing these trainings, it was, it's heartbreaking because that's exactly what the parents say. They were like, yeah, like, had I heard this message when my kid was in treatment, I a hundred percent things feel like things could have been completely different. And we've had, we had one woman who's had one child die and had another child who was, um, you know, in the kind of throes of an addiction problem and in the middle of the training, you know, so we do these trainings half of a Friday, all day, Sunday and all day, Monday, I mean, Saturday and Sunday, she did the, training on Saturday and then went home and talked to her daughter that Saturday night and came into the training on Sunday and was like, I just had 
the nicest conversation I've had with my daughter in like a year. Um, she just instantly applied the strategies to her kid um, and felt the effects of it, um, you know, which was, again, <laughs> completely reinforcing and relieving to her because um, she'd just been getting a message to distance herself from her kid um, over and over and over again. And that resulted in one child dying. So the stakes are incredibly high when you're helping helping people. Um, sorry. So that's great. And I want to shift this conversation a little bit more to um, the treatment center and the treatment center's role in both building relationships with uh, patients as well as um, supporting the family. Um, you know, maybe some con- concrete uh, techniques or tactics that can be used. And when we look at really effective treatment, it really is all about relationships, right? And it goes back to that honest and open communication that we have to have with individuals if we really want to understand their motivations and then see progress along um, their goals and hopefully in different ways um, that are not as, as negative or damaging. And so we've all seen, you know, in the treatment world, right, the I mean, especially the young adults, but it can be any age. They come in, they go through the motions, they say what they're supposed to say, and then they leave and they do the exact same thing that they've always done. And one of the reasons for that is that there was not rapport built up between that individual and um, the therapist or the people in the facility. And also there wasn't open and honest communication. So sometimes actually they have faced uh, negative repercussions and recrimination for being open and honest. So what they learn to do is they learn to shut down. They learn to not tell what they're thinking or what they're feeling. And they learn just to go through the motions because they know that if they say anything that um, is not supportive of what's being told, you know, within the group setting or in the individual setting, that they're just going to be labeled as um, non-compliant or problematic. And then that creates a really negative situation where it's really a lose-lose because the person doesn't get the support that they need and then the treatment center also has negative outcomes for the the families or the individual that came into the facility so what i want to um kind of ask you about is what are some specific techniques that you've used with families coming in and how are you involving them in that process or, or giving them specific techniques you know around that open and honesty building the relationships the communication pieces you know what do you guys do at the center for motivation and change um that you've seen effective with uh families well so it's it's um different so in the outpatient program uh you know we're a private practice full of psychologists so um as psychologists we can treat we can treat people for substance use problems. We can treat people for anxiety disorders. Um, you know, so uh, we may have we have family members come, and um, you know, often they are getting coached. And so it's a family session. You know, it's a couple session. It's two parents. Um, you know, it might be a a spouse. Um, so it's an individual psychotherapy session because we're also helping them with you know their anxiety and everything that they would be seeking therapy for. Um, so, and then, you know, we have once a week family groups, um, you know, Dr. Nicole Kosenke, who wrote the book with us, does a very low fee once a month, um, you know, workshop on these strategies where we just say, come pay $20, come learn a new concept or come for free if you need, um, you know, so, you know, we do workshops on the skills, we do groups on the skills, um, and then in the residential treatment program, uh, everybody has uh, their assigned family therapist, and that family therapist has weekly contact with the family. And that's different for every single person. I mean, we can really benefit from the fact that we only have 13 people in our program, so we can really individualize it. Um, you know, these programs that are much larger, I think that's more difficult. But, um, you know, we have taken the invitation to change approach and made it so that, you know, people could use it as group content. Um, you know, we're going to be putting up free resources on our website so that uh, people could be like, Hey, I want to teach you the idea of reinforcement. You know, they could potentially have somebody go to the website and watch a free video of the concept. Um, you know, there's several resources, um, uh, for craft online, um, that can be, you know, you can just refer your clients to, um, you know, to help them understand these concepts. So, I mean, I think it, it just depends how the program is set up, but in the rehab, it's bundled into the overall fee that your family member gets, you know, an, a, a session with the family therapist and you get a session with them, um, you know, while you're in treatment with us each week. 
So just to reiterate, it's really kind of, it sounds like there's three different um, models to look at when we're looking at sustainability and even from like a logistics and a reimbursement end. So first you have the traditional uh, model that I think most facilities these days use where they're just building the cost of communicating with the family through the therapist or family weekends into the treatment model, right? So they're not doing any extra reimbursement or billing for it. You know, they're not, there's no additional charges there. They're just saying, hey, we're going to cover this cost because it's important um, using the funding that we're getting for the individual in treatment. And the insurance payers are fine with that. The second one was actually uh, billing for services. So you know, most facilities um, have master's level clinicians these days and, and do dual diagnosis and co-occurring disorders. So you have staff that are able to treat individuals with bipolar, OCD, anxiety, depression, and a lot of families do have that, right? So there are ways to actually make that uh, billable time to bring them in for support. And I would add here too that, I mean, just from my discussions with the payers, um, I mean, I was recently just talking to uh, Anthem and their individual who runs SUD, you know, their feeling is, yeah, we're actually looking for more of a value-based care model, which we've talked about on this podcast before. And we're happy for you guys to incorporate whatever's gonna be effective for that individual, because that's what we want, right? If you guys can work with the family in a way that supports the individual, then we're happy to pay for that within a reimbursement model. Uh, the third piece that you mentioned was just uh, self-pay, right? But a small, very reasonable cost and having these uh, family sessions, right? And teaching families and giving them these toolkits and you, know, you charge a, a small amount per person to come in. But if I've got 20 people that come into uh, one of these weekend classes or an evening class, then that makes it uh, effective and affordable for um, both the individual as well as making sense for the treatment center to be able to provide those services and still pay you know, quality therapists to host those sessions. So I think it's having those different three options and just understanding that there are definitely ways to in involve the family um, in a couple different reimbursement models that's going to make it helpful for them. And we know that if the individual is going back into a family environment and the family dynamic is really important in the addictive, um, I don't always want to say relationship, uh, but we see that all the time, right? The homes that they're coming from are, are often a contributing factor of what's happening in concerns to addiction. And so if we're not addressing the home life, if they're going back, if they leave our facility into the same exact environment, they're much, much less likely to succeed. So we want to be able to give family the tools that they need to support their loved one and hopefully make changes of their own that are probably necessary um, so that the whole family is succeeding. Um, yeah, and the you know the foundation for change, the mission of that really is to get all of this evidence treatment out into the world in a very low cost, free way. You know, so we've taken the invitation to change approach and um, developed kind of a whole range of train trainings for professionals. Um, you know, so we can come into treatment programs and train staff, and that can you know be anywhere from day two day training. Um, you know, and opportunity for follow-up supervision, um, you know, just so you can really understand the skills. Um, we're training lay people to start support groups in their communities, you know, so hopefully, you know, there'll be invitations to change groups, you know, to like go along with Salonon groups um, where a family member could start a free support group in their community because there's never going to be enough treatment providers in this country to treat the problem that we have. Uh, and most people cannot afford it. <laughs> so we've got to find a way to get this into lay people's hands, you know, and you add on top of that, there are, you know, different communities across the country that are incredibly skeptical of treatment. They're never going to seek treatment um, for a whole host of cultural, you know, like just community reasons. Um, so any way we can get them access um, to this, the ways that they can, support their loved ones, um, it's the only way things are, are going to change. Um, and for lots of, you know, um, communities of color, the family is the most powerful thing. The family is the healing agent. You know, the church is the healing agent. You know, the community centers, you know, where the healing happens. It's not, they're not going to go to treatment. So if we can give these resources to those, you know, um, you know, communities, then maybe, 
healing can happen from within too. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, I mean, I always kind of joke, but we go to all these facilities all the time and it's just a lot of white people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just is. Um, and I was actually talking to Bill White about this a couple weeks ago. You know, he sent me some of the research on it. But I mean, well, partly you, ha- you have issues where like um, Asian Americans, for example, just as a cultural group in the U.S., just don't have the, the addiction levels um, and the struggles with it that a lot of other cultural groups do. Um, and then uh, the same kind of re- component, I guess, is some just don't find the traditionally have a comfortable setting or the right setting. And so you won't see as many African-Americans often in a kind of a traditional rehab model for a number of different reasons. Um, but it's just kind of the way it is. So uh, something else I just want to kind of look at is post-discharge. You know, we've talked about how you've helped the families in the facilities and how you involve them in treatment. But, you know, when you're finishing up treatment with an individual, is there anything specific that you're doing um, as far as like a treatment plan? I know you have the free resources on the website, so that's really effective. But, you know, some facilities have like peer recovery support specialists that are following up with individuals and families post-discharge. You know, is there anything specific that you guys are doing, um, not for the individual, but actually for the family as far as a follow-up? Yeah, that's that's why we developed the Foundation for Change, because, um, you know, if somebody's coming back into the New York City system, then, yeah, absolutely, we can, you know, we can follow up with their family. Their family can come to our outpatient program and get all sorts of support if they want. Um, you know, and a lot of our clients who go to the residential program may come back to New York City and not come to CMC outpatient. They may be with another treatment program or another treatment provider, their family can still come, you know, to Nicole's groups and things like that. But the foundation was really started because there are no providers across the country providing craft. Um, You know, it's been very slow to disseminate. And um, so we developed the foundation because we really want to get it out there and want to create an online presence where treatment programs, you know, and when we send somebody back to Chicago, their family member can go to the foundation website and get more support from us in an ongoing way, because right now it just doesn't exist. Um, so that's the whole point of the foundation is to get support out there. Um, you know, and so hopefully in the next year, we'll have a lot of um, training videos and support kind of videos where you can go on and learn. You can be like, okay, because I, I, I grew up in Western Kansas. I'm the, I, there are no treatment resources. Like we can drive three hours to, you know, see the, therapist who may or may not know anything about substance use. Um, So I want the mom in Oklahoma, you know, who gets her kids down to bed at 11 o'clock at night, be able to go online and find a way to like learn something that might help her with her child is really why we've developed the foundation. I mean, that's the ultimate goal um, is to be able to, you know, help people who otherwise would have a very difficult time accessing resources. So I'll add uh, links to the resources um, that you're talking about here if you want to send them over in the podcast notes. So just go to the, the podcast page on circlesociallink.com under the podcast and find carries. And if you look at the notes, we'll have the resources there. Um, but just for listeners, if they just want to make it easier, Carrie, what are some resources online to uh, that you would recommend around craft or the Center for Motivation and Change that are useful um, that you could share? So the um, Foundation for Change website is cmcffc.org, and you can always call us at 212-683-3684. So that is where, um, if you have any interest in getting trained in the Invitation to Change approach, um, you know, which includes craft, um, like maybe have your treatment team trained in it, that's that's where to reach us. Um, You know, and then the... uh, Treatment programs, the New York City office is 212-683-3339, and our general website is just motivationandchange.com. Um, so you can get both uh, Berkshire's information and the New York City outpatient on that website, all that information. And just to clarify, you have information on the website for providers if they want to incorporate this into their um, treatment protocols. And then you also have uh, information there for families that want to use it on their own. Is that right? Yeah, that's really um, for both providers and family members. um, They should really go to the cmcffc.org website. That's the nonprofit. Yeah, that's where... No, that's just where all the training in the invitation to change approach, whether it's for a professional or a layperson, that all happens through the foundation.
just really want to thank you for coming on and you know explaining uh craft a little bit more to the listeners because it's not like you said it's just not that common right now and um i had Lori ryland on a while back and she's a chief clinical officer for pinnacle treatment and one of the reasons i had her on is because she actually incorporates craft across the organization which you know i was just actually pretty surprised to hear is you just don't hear about it that often no it's starting to change it's great it's really you know just in the last couple of years it's interesting the last two years in the U.S. Um, seem to have evidenced more change in the way that we approach treatment than I think we have in the last 30. Well, I think it's the opioid crisis has humbled people. I think it's humbled traditional programs because that approach has, like, not using medication-assisted treatments, you know, like really thinking everybody's going to be able to go through the same process and benefit from it. Um, a lot of people have died. Um, so I think things have changed because they've had to, um, because people realize they weren't working and it's, you know, it's wonderful and it's great. Um, and I hope it continues to change. Um, but again, family members have just been left out of that evidence-based, um, change process. And I hope, I hope we can get them in the next, next five years. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts around kind of the research and data components here. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the opioid crisis was a catalyst for um, advancing some more evidence into treatment or at least um, bringing more familiarity with the research and the data than was uh, traditionally present in the field. But I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts around that, you know, like craft, for example, is a strongly evidence-based approach and we've got that data out there, but you don't see it incorporating treatment centers. And why do you think that there hasn't been um, an uptake in the the research and the evidence that exists so much in some aspects of um, treatment? Um, I, I don't, uh, it's just been a complete mystery to me, actually. I really, we have really never understood it. I I think it just goes against what has, was deeply, deeply baked into traditional treatment and into the culture, which is the codependency ideas and the enabling ideas. Um, Craft does not talk like that. Um, And it's actually saying the exact opposite, which is stay engaged. Um, You know, and again, culturally, we've had the tendency to lock substance users up, right? Punish them, lock them up, get away from them. It's a very stigmatized problem to have. Um, You know, the whole culture is designed to push away get away. Um, and that's been the same message for family members, unfortunately. Um, and there's so much shame. I mean, I literally just took a phone call the other day of somebody, um, who, you know, her son's been struggling for years and nobody in her life knows she's so full of shame as a parent that she has not told a single person what's going on with her son. Um, you know, so family members are, you know, just drowning in shame. Um, and there's actually been research that family members are b- blamed for being the cause of the problem, and they know it. Um, so they are, they're, they're skeptical and feel horrible about themselves. Um, you know, so there's just cultural reasons and stigmatized reasons why, you know, people have just not wanted to stay connected to people with substance use problems. Um, and, I mean, I think what's so amazing now is just kind of the... Um, the openness about it, you know, all of the, you know, like the sober sampling and, you know, just the people who are out about their sobriety, you know, and just all the social media access, I think is amazing and fascinating, you know, because now you have all these like awesome role models of like, yeah, I'm, I'm a person who, I'm, I'm a really successful person who had a really terrible substance abuse problem at one time. And I'm not ashamed of that. It was a period of, you know, something I struggled with. I'm human. You know, I mean, I think that has the potential to really also change. Yeah, I agree. Change the culture, you know, which is awesome. You know, and that's something that I really push out there and maybe not necessarily related to the the conversation we've had today, but just the strength-based approach to treatment, I think, is incredibly important. When you look with at people that were struggling with uh, addiction or mental health issues, you know, there is a lot of shit that you have to deal with, right? And the the resources and things that you bring to the table to get by in life um, is something that often people that haven't struggled with a mental health or addiction issue can't even imagine, right? And so, yeah, maybe you're struggling, but when you look at 
everything that you brought to bear, you look at everything that you survived, everything that you've been able to accomplish um, while you're struggling with addiction and mental health issues. I mean, that just shows a lot of strength. It shows a lot of resilience. um, And that's something that I think can be used to help you achieve recovery, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's, you know, when um, every once in a while, you know, people ask me what I do, and I, I tell them I work with addiction and substance use problems, and, you know, a lot of lay people will be like, oh, God, that must be so hard. That must be, ugh, you know, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I freaking love it. It's awesome. <laughs> like, you're working with, like, incredible people, you know, who are so vibrant and resilient and interesting and compelling in so many different ways, and and the best thing about it is people get better, you know? I mean, it's incredibly reinforcing as a as a treatment professional um you know that just watch that whole process um you know it's just it's just awesome it's a real gift absolutely agree yeah absolutely well carrie i really appreciate you taking the time i know um, how busy your schedule is and so just really want to thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom with the listeners here and helping them understand a little bit more about craft and your model and your philosophy and different ways of looking at um, loved one engagement that maybe isn't explored as often in the field. So as always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and I look forward to speaking with everyone next time.